0: Hello and welcome to our London History Podcast, where we share our love of London, its people, places and history. It's designed for you to learn things about London that most Londoners don't even know. I am your host, Hazel Baker, qualified London tour guide and CEO and founder of londonguidedwalks.co.uk. Each episode is supported by show notes, transcripts, photos and further reading, all to be found on our website. Click on londonguidedwalks.co.uk, podcast and then select the episode that you fancy. And if you enjoy what we do, then you'll love our guided walks and private tours that we offer throughout the year. So get that cup of tea, put your feet up and enjoy. Today we delve into a subject that encapsulates the full spectrum of London's storied traditions and celebratory customs – the Lord Mayor's Show. This remarkable event transcends the boundaries of a typical parade. It embodies an historical celebration that's part of the city's annual rhythm for more than eight centuries. It stands as the world's oldest and most cherished civic procession, an event that is noted for its extensive history, minimal rehearsal and universal appeal. It represents a declaration of London's autonomy, a spectacle that has roots in the medieval era, showcasing splendour and ceremony, while also serving as a contemporary homage to our collective resilience and the rich variety that defines our capital. The esteemed office of the Lord Mayor of the City of London will soon be occupied by the 695th incumbent, Alderman Michael Manelli, from the Broad Street Ward. His ascension to this venerable role is marked by the silent ceremony, an event shrouded in time-honoured tradition occurring on the eve of the Lord Mayor's show. Following this solemn occasion, on the 11th of November... Alderman Manelli, will partake in the grandeur of the Lord Mayor's show, a procession which will conclude with him affirming his allegiance to the Crown at Westminster. This role... Pivotal to the city's governance, not only involves presiding over the City of London Corporation, but also entails serving as a global ambassador for the UK's financial and professional services industry, symbolising the historic continuity and civic vitality of London. Now you may be wondering, why does London have a parade for a Lord Mayor? It doesn't have one for the Mayor of London or indeed the Prime Minister. So what's so special about it that warrants such a grand event? Well, buckle up, history enthusiasts, because we're taking a deep dive into the vibrant history and colourful traditions that make the Lord Mayor's show one of the fascinating aspects of London's cultural fabric. In this episode, we'll explore its medieval origins, how it evolved and its ups and downs through British history, and what makes it so special and exciting even in today's modern age. So whether you're a Londoner who has stood in the November chill to catch a glimpse of the passing spectacle, or someone who's only just heard about it now, there's something in this episode for you all. Let's begin with the origins and its historical significance. So before we get into the parade's iconic floats, the golden coach and other modern elements, let's discuss the historical cornerstone of this annual procession, and that is the Magna Carta. The Magna Carta, a Latin term which translates to the Great Charter, was drafted in 1215 um, and it was basically a peace treaty between King John and his rebellious barons. It laid the groundwork for many constitutional principles we hold dear today, such as the concept of individual liberties and the rule of law. While most people know it for these broader democratic principles, it also has a unique tie to our topic today, the Lord Mayor's Show. And you might be wondering, okay, well, how does a medieval document about barons and a king relate to a festive parade? Well, tucked among the clauses of this monumental charter was a provision that allowed the City of London to elect its own mayor, There was just one condition. The newly elected Lord Mayor had to leave the safety of the city, travel along the Thames and present himself at Westminster to swear loyalty to the Crown. A parade around the streets of the City of London in November may sound a bit strange, but there is a reason it was historically synchronised with the Feast of St. Simon and St. Jude falling on the 28th of October each year. This practice persisted until the pivotal year of 1751 when Britain made the momentous switch to the Gregorian calendar resulting in the emission of 11 days from September that year To accommodate this change and maintain the proper duration of the mayoral year, the date of the show shifted to the 9th of November, where it remained anchored for two centuries. Previously, the show's scheduling on a fixed date meant that it could occur on any day of the week, which by the mid-20th century became increasingly problematic. The disruption to the City of London was considerable, exacerbated by the fact that the procession's route would alter annually to reverse the ward of the newly elected Lord mayor. It was in 1952 that the Corporation of London, alongside the Home Office, implemented a standard route for the procession. This decision undoubtedly brought solace to the pageant master, among others, ensuring that the perennial dance between the parade and the evolving landscape of London's streets and structures remained a harmonious one. In a bid to streamline the event even further, 1959, March the year, it was decided that the Lord Mayor's show would henceforth take place on the second Saturday of November – thereby solidifying its date irrespective of the actual day. This change, however, intersects interestingly with the timing of Remembrance Sunday, observed on the Sunday nearest to Armistice Day on the 11th of November, and as a result, the show frequently unfolds on the eve of this solemn commemoration. The original journey along the Thames became a significant event. Initially, it was a simple, solemn procession, a river pageant, if you will, whose primary purpose was to show the Lord Mayor's allegiance to the Sovereign. However, the residents of London, never one to shy away from a spectacle, saw this as an opportunity for celebration. Soon enough, this formal procession turned into a much-anticipated annual event, complete with musicians, entertainers and public participation. The Lord Mayor's show is a pageant of endurance and has witnessed the relentless march of time, standing firm through episodes of plague, the catastrophic great fire of London, and civic tumult such as the unrest preceding the 1830 procession. Not even a scathing 1864 critique in the Times newspaper, which speculated the demise of the show, but not the banquet, could dampen its spirits. This historic procession has gracefully transitioned from river to road as the capital evolved from scattered hamlets to the modern metropolis that stretches from the city of London to what was once the distant hamlet of Westminster. The Chronicle of the Lord Mayor Show is a patchwork of history and mythology featuring ancient figures like Gog and Magog and historical personalities such as the real Dick Whittington. It's been immortalised in art and literature and has adapted to the changing times from World War I, when it became a recruitment rally, marred by inclement weather, to the frugal iterations during World War II, where even amid the blitz, the tradition endured with the Lord Mayor affirming his loyalty to the Crown. This procession is not simply an annual event, it is the heartbeat of London's resilience. Imagine the steadfastness required to maintain a tradition through the plagues. In 1666, despite much of the city lying in smouldering ruins, the Lord Mayor's show went ahead. A beacon of stability in uncertain times. In the unprecedented times of the 2020 Covid pandemic, for the first time since the mid-19th century, the show was paused, reflecting the gravity of global health concerns. The last such disruption had been in 1852, in deference to the Duke of Wellington's funeral. Even though there is now a set route The evolution of London's landscape necessitates occasional deviations to navigate construction and roadworks. These adjustments are not without precedent. As early as 1676, alterations were made to circumvent building materials for St Paul's Cathedral. And today... St Paul's Cathedral still dominates the route to the royal courts, but contemporary changes in the pageant master's role are more evident in the heightened security measures. A far cry from 1761, when Prime Minister William Pitt was celebrated by the crowd with such fervour that they mobbed his carriage and kissed his horses. In the early years following the Magna Carta in 1215, the Lord Mayor's flotilla consisted primarily of barges, many decorated but without the extensive fanfare we see today. The Thames, after all, was the main highway of London at the time and what better way to travel? However, With the passage of time, the journey began to acquire additional layers of ceremony and pageantry, and by the 16th century, the Thames procession had become something of a floating festival. It was a spectacle that even drew the attention of foreign visitors, one of whom, a certain Samuel Keishol, described it in 1585 as full of «wonderful triumphs with a peal of artillery». Yet the waterborne procession was not immune to practical challenges. We can look at the 1711 one when, according to records, the Lord Mayor ended up rather unceremoniously tipped into the river. After that, unsurprisingly, a shift towards land-based processions began to take hold. The 19th century was a transformative period for the Parade. The Industrial Revolution, along with the expansion of the British Empire, brought new technologies and cultural influences that began to shape the procession. Steamboats, for instance, made their debut, and in 1757 the first grand stand was erected. In the 1882 parade, there were even elephants. Yes, elephants a clear sign of a parade that is continually reinventing itself. As we moved into the 20th century, the parade saw further modernisation, but also had to contend with the considerable challenges posed by the two world wars. And the procession continued in some form during these troubled times, as if London were making the statement that tradition and resilience could coexist even in the darkest hours. In the post-war era, the parade had only continued to grow in scale and diversity, and today it includes a stunning array of participants, from military bands to modern floats representing charities, London boroughs and various institutions, the flotilla tradition has been revived in recent years, adding another layer to this ever-evolving spectacle. What's particularly worthwhile is how the Lord Mess show has expanded to become a platform of cultural expression and inclusivity. It- Reflects London's cosmopolitan makeup, featuring groups ranging from bhangra dancers to Caribbean steel bands, all marching along traditional city of London institutions. And London itself has always been a melting pot of cultures, ideas, and people. And the Lord Mayor's Show has, in many ways, mirrored that diversity over the years. From its early beginnings, as a simple oath of allegiance, the parade has expanded to include a vast array of communities and organisations, each contributing to the fabric of this magnificent event. And it's worthwhile talking about inclusion In the past, the event was primarily a display of power and allegiance between the City of London and the monarchy, but over time, the involvement of various guilds and livery companies have added a new dimension to the parade. These organisations played a pivotal role in shaping trade and industry in London, and their inclusion in the Lord Mayor's show made it a true reflection of the city's economic might." As the British Empire grew and London found itself at the centre of world commerce, the Lord Mayor's Show also took on an international flavour. The Lord Mayor's Show is an evolving tableau that embraces the cultural richness of the city. Not only communities, but various organisations have also joined in, ranging from charities to educational institutions, from the military units I've mentioned, and also to sports clubs. And this has democratised the event in a sense, enabling it not just to be a procession for the elite, but a celebration of many facets of society that can engage in and enjoy And let's not forget, the parade has also had its share of female Lord Mayor's. The first woman to hold the post was Dame Mary Donaldson, who took on the role in 1983. Her participation in the Lord Mayor's show marked a significant step towards gender inclusivity in the event that was historically male-dominated. And since then, more women have donned the tricorn hat and stepped into the golden carriage, reflecting changing societal norms, even though I'd like to see more in the future. In essence, the Lord Mayor's show is no longer just a static pageant, but a dynamic celebration of London's multifaceted identity. It's a testament of how the city, and indeed the event itself, has been able to adapt and change just as the River Thames, the original stage for the event, winds its way through London, ever-changing but enduring. So let's move on to some key memorable moments, shall we? In 1800, the Lord Mayor's show celebrated the nation's victory over the French in the Battle of the Nile, a significant naval confrontation between the British Royal Navy and the Navy of the French Republic. On that occasion, an elaborate float representing a ship named Lorient was part of the procession, celebrating Admiral Nelson's victory. In the Victorian era, the event saw remarkable innovations in terms of floats and pageantry and industrialisation was the theme of the day. So businesses were keen to showcase their machines, products and technological marvels. Imagine steam engines slowly making their way through the narrow streets of the City of London. Another significant shift was in 1952, when Winston Churchill was present as Lord Mayor Sir Leslie Boyce laid a wreath at the Cenotaph to honour the war dead. A sombre moment that showed how the event could also serve as a platform for national remembrance. What are the iconic elements and traditions that make the Lord Mayor's show an event like no other? First up, Giants. As the Lord Mayor's procession unfurls through the streets of London, leading the cavalcade are two imposing yet majestic wicker figures known as Gog and Magog, the revered protectors of the city. Their inclusion in the Lord Mayor's show is a custom that hearts back to the time of King Henry V. These mythical colossi find their roots in the Matter of Britain, the rich tapestry of medieval legends intertwined with the early monarchs of the Isles. The narrative takes us back to a time when Diocletian, the Roman emperor, had 33 unruly daughters. In a tale of treachery, these daughters wed to 33 husbands would enact a gruesome plot led by their eldest, Alba, slaughtering their spouses as they slept. The heinous crime saw them cast out to sea, eventually reaching the shores of a grand isle that would bear the name Albion, after the scheming Alba. There, consorting with demons, they gave rise to a progeny of giants who roamed the untamed storms' lush landscapes. Enter Brutus, a descendant of the Trojan hero Aeneas, who, after a series of adventures and misfortunes, landed upon the same isles. Naming them Britain after himself, he established his dominion. Alongside him, was the valiant warrior Corineus, who would engage the fearsome giant Gogmagog in combat, ultimately vanquishing him by throwing him off a cliff known thereafter as the Giant's Leap. In honour of his victory, Corineus received Cornwall as his domain, while Brutus ventured east to find what became known as London. These tales, largely mythological, yet enduringly influential, were chronicled by Geoffrey of Monmouth in his 12th century work Historica Regum Britanniae. This text sought to connect the Celtic monarchs to the Homeric epics and the legendary King Arthur. And despite anachronisms and historical liberties, blending ancient Troy's fall with Diocletian's era and repurposing the name Gomagog from Biblical Law. These stories were taken as historical fact for generations, shaping the self-image and peasantry of London's governance. The tradition of venerating giants as original settlers or founders is not unique to Britain. Across cultures, it's commonplace to mythologise the earliest inhabitants as being of immense stature, Their physical prowess magnified as their exploits transcend into legend. And the giants of old were not monstrous in appearance, rather they embellished recollections of formidable figures from a bygone epoch of strength and simplicity. By the Middle Ages, the practice of parading effigies as festivals had become widespread throughout England and Europe, with mythological giants frequently among their number. An alternate strand of the Gog and Magog legend posits that they were the last surviving offspring of Diocletian's daughters, bound and positioned at the gates of a palace at the site of the present Guildhall. Whether as prisoners or protectors, by the time of Henry V, carved figures of giants were stationed at Guildhall's gates. In the 17th century, these effigies began to feature prominently in the Lord Mayor's show, with the pageant master referencing them as Koroneos and Gogmagog. The Lord Mayor's show has seen various representations of these guardians. In 1672, following the devastation of the Great Fire of London, new effigies were created, only to succumb to vermin due to their construction from wicker and pasteboard yummy. In 1708, wood carvings by Captain Richard Saunders took their place, enduring for over two centuries before succumbing to the Blitz. The current statues, crafted by David Evans in 1953 and gifted by Alderman St George Wilkinson, are a testament to London's resilience and they do look fabulous. Gog and Magog stand as powerful symbols linking the city's vibrant modernity to its mythical past. The phoenix on Magog's shield presenting rebirth from ashes encapsulating the city's capacity for renewal. And the effigies echo the sentiments of Thomas Borman who eloquently summarised a Londoner's perspective. Like the formidable giants of yore the City of London pledges to stauntly safeguard the honour and freedoms of both the nation and the metropolis itself, towering in its commitment as surely as gog and Magog loom over the ordinary stature of humankind. Now let's talk about the vintage cars and other vehicle curiosities that have graced the parade route. These aren't just any cars – Many are historical artefacts on wheels, each telling its own story. For automotive enthusiasts and historians alike, this part of the parade offers a timeline of motorised transport and of course it adds a layer of nostalgia that's quite charming. No discussion of the Lord Mayor's show would be complete without mentioning the floats. They range from the highly elaborate to the endearingly simple, but all serve as platforms for various companies, charities and community groups to showcase their causes, achievements or simply their creativity. With themes as varied as the organisations they represent, the floats provide a colourful tapestry of London's social and economic fabric. But of course, what would a parade be without music? There's military marketing bands playing a significant role in the festivities with synchronised steps and resounding melodies not only providing a soundtrack for the procession but also lending a certain ceremonial gravitas to the event. And these bands often representing different regiments and divisions paying homage to the country's military history and the service of its member. And let's be honest, it's incredibly entertaining to watch and the most glorious spectacle of all, the golden coach. If you've ever had the pleasure of witnessing the Lord Mayor's show, it's almost impossible to miss this magnificent carriage. First used in 1757, the coach is an epitome of opulence, with its intricate carvings and lavish gold leaf ornamentation. Believe it or not, the coach weighs nearly three tonnes and requires six horses to pull it. And this iconic vehicle carries the Lord Mayor from the Guildhall to the Royal Courts of Justice and back again in a procession that embodies both the grandeur and the tradition. Now, let's turn our attention to some more of the more interesting ceremonial artefacts associated with the Lord Mayor's role, and that includes the ceremonial sword and mace. The sword, often referred to as the Sword of State, symbolises the Lord Mayor's authority within the square mile, that's the City of London. The mace, on the other hand, represents the royal authority by which the Lord Mayor's office operates. Both of these items are displayed prominently during the parade, and they're not just for show. They encapsulate the weight of tradition and the gravitas of the roles and responsibilities bestowed upon the new Lord Mayor. And it's these details, the grandiosity of the golden coach, the symbolism of the sword and the mace, and the overarching role of the Lord Mayor that weave together to create this intricate tapestry that is the Lord Mayor's Show. It's easy to think of the Lord Mayor Show as just a grand parade, a bit of pomp and ceremony, and that's just largely for show. But if we scratch beneath the surface... There's so much more to it. It's not merely a London-centric affair, it has nationwide implications. Economically speaking, the Lord Mayor's show has been a boon for London. Every year, the event draws in tens of thousands of spectators to the heart of the city, so hotels, restaurants, cafes and shops in the vicinity see a considerable uptake in business. And the event itself provides temporary jobs and contracts from float design to costume making. And there is an entire logistical operation behind the scenes. And all of these contribute to the local economy. It also provides a global stage for various sectors in the UK. Floats from charities, military organisations and financial corporations get the chance to represent themselves in the parade. Modern interpretations of the parade have not shied away from using digital mediums to gauge with a younger and global audience. Social media channels buzz with updates, live feeds and interactive features, ensuring that even those who can't make it to the streets of London can still be part of the historic celebration – And in the show notes for episode 123, I have included a video that I have edited from when I attended in 2021. In addition to technological innovations, the parade has also been a platform for social consciousness. Environmental sustainability is now a recurring theme with many floats being designed with recycled or sustainable materials. And in terms of public awareness, the Lord Mayor's show has increasingly become a stage for campaigns ranging from public health initiatives to drive supporting local charities. The fusion of the traditional with the current social zeitgeist gives the parade a unique resonance that is both timely and timeless. Let's shift our focus to another crucial facet of this grand event – its significant role in charity work and public awareness. The office of the Lord Mayor itself is deeply tied to charitable endeavours. The Lord Mayor's Appeal, for instance, is an annual fundraising campaign led by the incumbent Lord Mayor and the show provides an excellent platform to highlight the year's chosen charities. The causes supported are varied ranging from mental health initiatives to educational programmes and even environmental conservation. Floats dedicated to these causes often make their way through the procession, each designed to engage the public in a meaningful way, whether it's a float made entirely of recycled materials to highlight sustainability, or a tableau depicting London's historical events to combat poverty, these elements within the parade provide not just visual delight, but also food for thought. We have a chance to change the future. Let's move on to how you can be part of this grand spectacle. If you're based in London or planning a visit around the time of the Lord Mayor's show, then watching it in person is an unparalleled experience. The parade covers a three-mile-long route and offers numerous vantage points. Uh, Secure a good spot. It's advisable to arrive at least an hour before the procession starts. Um, Some require tickets some areas so it's worth checking on the official Lord Mayor show but I like to stand on the north side of Ludgate Hill. Now if you can't make it to London fret not the parade is extensively covered by various media outlets. Traditionally the BBC um, broadcasts the event live and of course you can watch a past event um, from my own video. At its core the Lord Mayor's show is about more than just a procession or pageantry. It's a celebration of civic responsibility, community spirit, and most significantly, the continuity of tradition in an ever-changing world. Have we seen the show's metamorphosis over the years parallels London's own transformation, sometimes gradual, other times revolutionary? but always pushing towards the future without forgetting its roots. Thank you for joining me on this engrossing journey through one of London's most cherished traditions. The Lord's Mayor Show encapsulates so much of what makes this city extraordinary, a blend of the old and the new, a testament of resilience and a symbol of collective celebration. It truly is a must-see event for anyone interested in experiencing the intricate interplay of history, culture and modern day life. That's all for now. See you next time.